The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola America, a Tier 1 solar module producer and LED light manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company has a proven track record of being a partner for project developers looking to maximize their return on investments. Call 415-852-7421 to find your local representative or head on over to their website at renasola.us. For the week of September 3rd, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I am your host, Stephen Lacey in Washington, D.C., a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome all. Thanks for being here. This week, how big can distributed battery storage get? The CEO of a leading behind-the-meter storage developer joins us to discuss. Then, a post-mortem on the Solyndra bankruptcy. After four years, the Inspector General has finished its investigation of the controversial company. We will investigate it ourselves. Finally, we'll talk about the controversial energy investment choices of yet another billionaire, Warren Buffett. But first, I want to take a few seconds here to celebrate a big milestone at the Energy Gang. This is our 100th episode. Things were so different 100 episodes ago. My beard was a little bit shorter. I hadn't even reached my 30s yet, and I was using a BlackBerry phone. But one thing stayed the same. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, my two co-hosts. Catherine's in D.C. here with me. She's with 38 North Solutions, a partner over there. How are you celebrating today's 100th episode? Well, I was thinking, Stephen, of the number 100 and thinking that's the number of socks that my new puppy has stolen from us. Um, but it's also um, the no- probably the number of people I've reached out to to get smarter on each of these episodes. And 100 is probably the number of pages of notes I've printed out just uh, in, in the way that I do the podcast where I have notes spread out all over my desk. But it's also 100 times I've been able to talk to you guys and had so much fun and enjoyed every minute of it, whether it's Stephen not reading the press release or Jigger saying words that Stephen has to eventually cut from the episode or else we have to mark it E. Um, but uh, it's also a hundred times I've been humbled by our listeners and um, in in sticking with us, in learning from us and with us and in teaching us and helping us keep going. So yeah, it's been a great hundred episodes. That's great. And that's 200 cups of coffee for me. <laughs> Jigger is the president of Generate Capital. He's in New York City. What about you, sir? How are you marking the 100th episode? Well, you know, I just finished drinking 100 milliliters of my own urine with President Obama and Bear Grylls in Alaska. <laughs> no, but um, no, this has been. Did you bill, Did you drill 100 barrels of oil too? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I, I definitely made up at least 100 facts in the Energy Gang podcast. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, so that so I've got that going for me, but no, things are going really well. So uh, I was in my 30s, and now I'm in my 40s. So good. Well, I'm gonna cook a celebratory tofurkey in a solar powered oven and serve it with some herbal sun tea here to celebrate after the show. <laughs> All right, back to the business at hand. STEM is one of the best-known startups in the distributed storage business. In 2009, the company unstealthed under the name Powerjetics with a focus on residential storage. Even today, many years later, the economics of residential storage are fuzzy, so it wasn't the right plan of attack at the time. In 2011, the company rebranded itself as STEM, using lithium-ion batteries and its software and control system to cut demand charges in the commercial industrial sector. 
and pulling in more than $10 million in a Series A round. The company has since raised $75 million from a range of high-profile investors, including GE Ventures and the European utilities Iberdrola and RWE, and it is set to install about 10 megawatts of behind-the-meter battery systems this year. John Carrington is the CEO of STEM, and he is going to join us to talk about why this particular area of storage is taking off in the U.S. and beyond, and uh, where the economics and applications are headed. John joins us from the STEM offices in Millbrae, Millbrae, California. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. And uh, Catherine Jigger, always a pleasure. I uh, want to also congratulate you on the 100th episode. Uh, great run, very impressive, and uh, I've certainly enjoyed the podcast along the way, and I know it's uh, something that the industry in general talks quite a bit about, so you're all doing great work. We appreciate that. Well, we're pleased to have you on. Um, no, I know you weren't heading up STEM when the company transitioned early on from residential to commercial, but I'd love for you to give us a little bit more color on why STEM made that early change and what it says about the business case for behind-the-meter storage in this country. You know, why the target of the commercial industrial sector and more specifically demand charges? What did they see early on? Yeah, I think they early on thought, just from a scale standpoint, residential looked very appealing. But when you look at the economics, and you alluded to this earlier in the intro, the C&I aspect of the business has demand charges. Today, uh, while there's a fair amount of legislation, utility executives are speaking of doing this at a broader scale, it's really not um, uh, taken hold. And I, I, don't, I think it will going forward, but in the C&I case, demand charges are a big component of the bill for customers. It's becoming over half the total energy uh, bill on a monthly basis. So there was a much bigger market in the near term, and that was really the pivot into this uh, into this space. And so we've had a lot of success in a variety of regions, and uh, we are sticking with CNI for now. And as the uh, residential market unfolds, we'll, we'll consider that as an option. Well, the other challenge with the CNI versus residential space is that the uh, the cost of the the hardware to actually talk to the batteries and to manage it and do all that work, I guess, would be pretty much exactly the same between one of your units at a commercial facility and one of the units at residential. Yeah, I think that's fair, Jigger. I also think there's a, a big CAC piece that, you know, if you're a, look, if you're a solar city or a, another so, uh, solar installer, you might have a, an easier case to build because uh, you're already there. But for our perspective, you know, we're after Fortune 500 companies, multi-location, and you go talk to the chief sustainability officer, you do the deal, and you get you know, 500 Wells Fargo's as an example. And, and that's a better fit for us right now. But again, I, I really highlight the economics today. Is it, It's just not that appealing. Um, as soon as they are, we'll be the first to, uh, to address it. We are in a partnership with SunPower, and we could certainly use that channel as, uh, as the market unfolds. So, John, when you decide what market to go into, are you just looking at the customers or how does policy kind of fit into that? So if you think about Hawaii, certainly the rates are high and in some places like California, your demand charge would be high. Um, is New York potentially a good market for you all? How does policy kind of fit into that? And then, you know, do you think from the policy standpoint that what you're doing is going to start getting more compensation than just for reducing demand? So ancillary, different kinds of ancillary services. Yeah, certainly the policy aspect is an important role. And, and we have a team that's, that's focused on that. 
Um, I would say that the, the markets that you mentioned, New York is an area that we're very focused on. We have closed business there. I think everyone's aware of some of the constraints that the New York Fire Department has had on lithium batteries. That's our technology of choice today. So we are waiting for some of that to change. It's our belief that will occur in the first quarter of next year. And I think that will open the market. Obviously, the REV activities are, are very compelling um, uh, in, in light of the distributed nature that they're focused on. So that's that's a, a lot of the activity there. California, there's a fair amount, as you know, of activity going on here and some changes around NIM and various things that they're looking at doing. But for us, you know, we're really trying to focus on getting our cost of capital, the cost of batteries and the system down to a point where demand charges alone could justify using the system with or without regulatory uh, support. And we're actually pretty close in a, in a lot of markets now as we've seen some of these battery costs come down. So uh, not unlike my days at first solar, we were really trying to get to subsidy free levels. And that's my focus for STEM. I want to get to a point where we can drive throughput in a variety of markets on the economics of demand charges alone. And then as these ancillary services come together, which we do believe will occur in markets across the country, and CNI customers will become more of a market maker as opposed to just a price taker, we'll be there well positioned to, to enable that with our software capabilities. What are you seeing for battery pricing trends? So I'm reading this uh, biography of Elon Musk right now, and, and I've just gotten past the part where they, they talk about Tesla and um, you know some of the early founders were putting together one of the prototype cars, and they realized, my God, lithium-ion battery prices have come down so much, and the technology is advancing, and people didn't really realize how fast the technology was advancing in the early 2000s. And I'm sort of thinking about this in the context of distributed storage, where People still see storage as an expensive option, but you now have these companies that realize that the pricing and cost trajectory for lithium-ion uh, is heading in the right direction. And I'm just curious if if you guys have had that aha moment and, and what you're seeing in terms of battery pricing that makes these storage systems more likely to thrive in states other than like California and New York. Sure. The, the batteries battery pricing and cost declines are faster than I think what Jigger and I saw in our, our solar days, quite frankly. It has been pretty substantial and, and surprising for me, at least, to be in this role and see what's occurred. We cut our battery costs by over 70% last year alone. I've been in Asia now. I'll be there next week. It'll be my third trip this year. And what's interesting, when you visit the, all the big names that we know, the, the leaders in each of those companies to a CEO will say, we've installed the capacity, we are betting big on EVs, we believe the storage market is also a big play, but it's very focused on EVs. And I think when they put these capacity plans in place, and this is not we're going to go do, the, the capacity's there. We um, were banking on EVs to take off. I think that was also modeled at $100, $120 oil. And while a Tesla owner may not care about miles per gallon, I think it is constraining some of the growth. So they, there is some excess capacity, which is driving some of these costs down. And I, I do believe that you also have some interesting players in the market. You have LG and Samsung, who are very reputable firms that 
that quite frankly are very competitive with one another. And maybe the only other ones they're more competitive with would be someone like a Panasonic. So it's sort of lined up to be a pretty interesting battle. And then from the Chinese side, you've got a massive company like uh, BYD who if you want to talk Elon Musk and the, his biography, I mean, they've got eight or nine gigafactories and they're building four more. So this is a company that will become a force in this space. So there's tremendous capacity. I think they're getting better and better at quality and safety. And so I am uh, very confident that the supply demand economics are continue to take hold. We're going to continue to see uh, costs come down. And obviously, from our standpoint, that only opens up more markets. So it's a very exciting time uh, for the industry. And I think these um, uh, capacity, this capacity that's in the ground will only help broaden the market here in the U.S. and, and globally, for that matter. John, you know, the batteries for cars are generally, I mean, cars are generally more, are harder on equipment like batteries than a stationary application. Do you think that the batteries that you're using then are almost over-engineered for the stationary purpose? Well, I think the stationary battery versus the EV pack, they, they are tweaking them a little bit. And um, I know most of the large suppliers that we're working with, can, they have that capability. So I don't know that it's, uh, in most cases, an exact drop-in. The other question I had for you was really more around um, the policy side of this, where, you know, I think when you look at what Hawaii is doing, Hawaii really is doing RFPs that you guys are competing in and, you know, winning some of them. And, and it's really a utility-led strategy, whereas the solar-led strategy is really more, hey, you know, I got a, I got a guy, you know, he's paying very high demand charges in, in San Diego Gas and Electric's territory. If I add a battery for the last hour of the day, I can really save him a lot more demand charges. And then, oh, by the way, I could register that battery into the California ISO. So it's a lot less command and control. Um, you know, as a policy um, influencer, you know, are you steering the market one way or the other, whether it's, you know, utility-led versus CNI-led? Yeah, it's, it's a great point, Jigger. I think that we are not necessarily picking either utility or CNI. We're, we're really trying to, to look at the value stream in both cases. And I think when you look at energy storage, they do, it does have a unique quality and its ability to be used for a variety of services, right? It can be used for peak shaving at customer sites and saving businesses and organizations money on their energies, energy costs rather, without changing operation. I mean, the software enables that. Yet, when you look at the uh, grid side, it can provide multiple services as well. I mean, here in California with CalISO, um, we're doing we're doing uh, aggregation in PG&E's territory with Olivine. There's also the, the day ahead. There's the five-minute ahead. So the real-time markets we've just started to participate in. We've seen the SCE local capacity resource procurement in Southern California, to, and obviously what we could do there from a capacity standpoint with energy storage. And and in that case, they took uh, 260 megawatts of energy storage. So I think the, the ability to use a single system to deliver all these value streams increases the revenue for STEM and our customers get uh, the return on, on these benefits from a system standpoint. So there's several big policy chunks that we're participating in. But, um, you know, from our standpoint, CNI and utility both not necessarily trying to place our bet with one or the other because we do feel like we provide value to both uh, stakeholders. And John, it just strikes me that with the clean power plan that you are really well positioned to be able to help industrial consumers, but also states and utilities to meet those goals. 
Yeah, we, we would like to think so. I mean, I, again, we're, uh, we feel like it's a great solution for both, as you, as you mentioned. And I think, um, I think all this, the discussions that I've been in with anybody in the legislative side, uh, they tend to agree with, with your very statement. And uh, Catherine, I think we're going to see some very compelling things come out to help drive this industry and much broader beyond California, New York, and Hawaii in the very near term. So I want to um, I want to kind of reconcile the hype around storage with the reality of of the business. C- clearly, investors are intrigued. You've raised seventy five million dollars in equity and some project funds. You know we're installing distributed storage systems in record numbers, albeit records compared to almost nothing a few years ago. You know someone like Elon Musk rolled out his big show for the company's storage units this spring, creating a ton of press attention, which bleeds over to all the other companies active in this space. But it also sort of, I think, makes storage seem bigger than it is currently. And, uh, you know, we just came out with our numbers yesterday. We installed 40 megawatts of storage in, in the U.S. last quarter. And Solar City is installing five times that much solar on its own as one company every quarter. Um, help us understand the difference between, I think, where we are in the hype cycle and where the business is. And I'm going to guess that you're saying, um, you know, that the exuberance is warranted given that you're in the business of selling storage. But I just love a, a truthful answer on where you think we are versus where the, the, the hype is in the press. Well, I think there's a couple things. I mean, there, there's certainly some hype out there, but I think that um, we're to a point where utilities are seeing the disruption from a variety of technologies that's occurring, so they're more engaged. The companies like our investors, a GE or a Mitsui, or Total for that matter, that are energy providers or product suppliers to utilities that maybe have not addressed some of this disruption, i.e. GE has not gone into the residential storage side, uh, nor has Mitsui. So where they have not participated in some of these areas, because their biggest customer was a utility, and they obviously didn't want to compete with them, I think they're looking at this and saying, is that the right strategy in storage? So I think there's a big part of utilities trying to figure it out and, and make investments. We're seeing that. Obviously, the strategics that I just mentioned. And I think the venture world is looking at it and saying, hey, if there's a software component, it's CapEx light, we're very interested. Um, from a number standpoint, um, you know, look, you, you guys report the, the, the numbers. I think that they're very accurate and it probably does get, we do get our unfair share as an industry of what's going on, but it's a huge market. I think there's a lot of legislative changes in our favor and there are just so many states that haven't adopted things that they're all talking about doing. It's so analogous to me to back when California and CSI it was the only that was the only market and first solar we were getting hammered by analysts about what are you going to do in other markets when's that going to happen and I don't think anybody had New Jersey and SREX on the slide so I think this will evolve it's going to continue to be a growing market here in the U.S. and abroad and um, you know again I think we're very well positioned to uh, to grow with that. What is your ultimate belief or hope of, of where distributed storage is going to go? If you ask solar professionals, most of them would say they want to see or think that they're going to eventually see every rooftop suitable for solar will be hosting a system. Do you envision something similar for, for battery storage systems in businesses and in homes? 
Yeah, my my vi- my vision around this is as follows. I think that every constrained grid, which is really any old grid, particularly the United States, is a highly congested city, will have the ability to basically create a virtual power plant with Stem's product. So any one of these buildings can provide grid stability while allowing customers to save money. Our software platform will, in fact, enable them to participate in markets as this unfolds. So um, we believe that it's a great service to the utility and to the customers. And every building out there is a potential client for us. And um, not unlike solar, I think uh, every residence and every C&I building, there's a potential fit. And we feel very much the same about that with STEM. And I think um, we'll see more and more markets open in the U.S. and globally. But it's uh, it's early stages and a tremendous amount of upside ahead. And we're looking forward to uh, leading that leading that uh, that drive and um, uh, having a big big market to look back on and say we all created it together. John Carrington is the CEO of STEM. He joined us from STEM's offices in Millbrae, California. John, thanks for being on the show. Thank you all, and again, happy 100th. <laughs> thanks, John. All right, this is the point in the show where we get to talk about our supporter, our sponsor, Renesola America. Renesola is a tier one solar manufacturer. But did you also know that it's a lighting manufacturer? Renesola manufactures and distributes fully certified lighting products for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. You can enhance your project with Renesola LED lighting solutions for all applications. Not only will you save on cost through bundled offerings, you'll save on time too. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses featuring its products and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. To find their products, to talk to a rep, or to scope out their services, call 415-852-7421 or go to their website at renesola.us. It is time for us now to close the Solyndra chapter of the solar industry's history. Last week, the Department of Energy's Inspector General released its four-year investigation of the Solyndra bankruptcy conducted in partnership with the FBI. It is a damning report showing that executives outright lied to the government about sales and performance in order to get a loan guarantee. Um, And it, it also shows that the DOE was not tracking these problems correctly. Although I'm sure almost everyone listening knows the Solyndra saga quite well, I'm obliged to remind our audience of the details. Solyndra was, of course, this California startup that made tubed shape thin film solar panels. It wowed venture capitalists uh, during the bubble and convinced them to cumulatively invest about a billion dollars in the company through 2009. Uh, It also convinced the Department of Energy to give it a $535 million loan guarantee to help it build out manufacturing. Um, And that loan guarantee was started in the Bush administration and rolled over into the Obama administration. But the company could not keep up with price reductions in conventional solar PV and went bankrupt in 2011, leaving taxpayers on the hook and shedding more than 1,000 jobs. It became a huge political story here in Washington, and Republicans used Solyndra for years as a way to claim Obama's clean energy investments were a waste of money. So here we are four years later. The official report on what happened is out. And we're going to talk about it now. And God willing, put this Solyndra story behind us. Catherine, can you summarize some of the key findings for us? Which quite are kind of easy to summarize. I was surprised at how short this report was. Yeah, it's only 13 pages. And I honestly, I can't believe you think we're going to close this chapter. I thought this was the <laughs> gift that would just keep on giving. 
Um, yeah, so it was 13 pages. Um, basically, wanted to do this to make sure that they were able to deploy this next $40 billion that they want to do. They wanted to check and make sure that the due diligence had been done correctly on it. And it was certainly, there were some big problems with that. But the heart of the matter that they came to was that the Solyndra officials um, really gave inappropriate misleading information from the very beginning that impacted the due diligence and impacted everything that happened along the way, the whole credit review process. Um, and so all of the Solyndra information impacted whether the loan guarantee should have been given at all, what the size of it would have been, and then what the terms were. So as you had said in the Bush administration, and I called Jonathan Silver, who ran the loan guarantee program for a period of time during the Obama administration, um, to just get the timeline straight. So the Bush during the Bush administration, and the Bush administration, this was their program, um, the loan guarantee program. It was their brainchild. They started it. And um, they did all the due diligence. And so the review and the closing of the agreement was during, um, or the approval and closing was during the Obama administration. But the credit review board um, came out of the Bush administration and said, there are a few issues remaining and here are the issues. And the Obama administration folks then came in and said, all right, we'll fix those three issues and put that to rest and go ahead and process it. The problem is like no one actually unpacked the original due diligence to see where all the numbers came from. And it seems like a combination of what the Solyndra folks fed them and then what the consultants who were processing this information just took on faith really created the problem to begin with. Jigger, I know that uh, you think that the DOE is at greater fault than what this report claims. Well, I mean, in, I, I wrote a piece in the Huffington Post back in 2011 about this. And, you know, I, look, I don't think that the solar industry... Um, the DOE should be actually picking winners and losers in this space. They're not capable of picking winners and losers. Um, you sound like Mitt Romney. And who do you pick, right? Like, when you look at the next generation um, module manufacturers, do you pick you know, this guy with high efficiency? Do you pick this guy with a tubular you know, um, you know, uh, shape? I mean, who do you pick exactly? And it's, it's just not clear. Right? We don't really have a good... Um, industrial policy in this country to really support manufacturing. And so, um, but I do think that what Catherine was saying is absolutely right, which is basically that like, you know, in my opinion, this report was literally just blatant cover for government officials who just didn't do their job, right? So the bottom line is they just didn't do their own due diligence. You know, if you remember what was happening, we were in the midst of a financial crisis. Obama had just gotten elected. He was talking about shovel-ready projects. And this was the deal that was already you know, had been under uh, coordination and under, you know, sort of deliberation within the Bush administration for a year. So it was easy to approve right away. And, you know, there are a lot of us who wrote emails to the administration saying, please don't approve this deal because this is not a good company to put money behind, um, including, you know, Steve Westy, who did that as well. And um, they pushed ahead anyway. And so it, it sort of is what it is. But the fact that this report does not have the government raising their hand saying we totally screwed up is, you know, means that this whole report was basically doctored and politi uh, politically motivated. Well, it doesn't sound like justice is going to, Department of Justice is going to go after the company either. Yeah, what's, what, why? Is, is, do you think that's a political consideration, Catherine? I mean, I don't, there's no I, reason I, I, to why, go after but a But why company? not criminal, yeah. so they, they, the Justice Department doesn't think that this was a federal offense. 
And well, then, you and look at the language offense. that they're using. I mean, they lied. They lied to get a lied loan is, guarantee. Lied is such a ridiculous word. They when claimed that about- they had $2 billion in sales, and then they went off to the customer and said, we are telling the government that we are selling you more than we really are. That is a bold-faced lie. Yeah, and I'm but- surprised that people are using such soft language. No, but so, right. so Stephen, though, the, the other investors, the billion dollars they raised of private equity, they're not, they're not going to go after them either because it's like that's what happens when you're an investor. You get some, you win some, you lose some. And this was a loser for some of them. Now, if you look at the loan guarantee program writ large, they've made, even with the losses, $5 billion of net profit. They only had a 2.5% default rate. It would have been 100% non default rate if it hadn't been for Cylinder and then Beacon that went under, but Beacon came back and, d- and did well but so the program itself did really really well and if you're that an investor not a good one Catherine I mean that the bottom line is that the returns that they made were on stupidly simple projects on utility scale solar projects right so if you look at the returns that they've made on corporate investments they've made I bet you the picture would be vastly different right and so like I, I just think this notion that the company that the federal government knows how to pick winners and losers. Fine, they made money on Tesla, but they lost their shirts on Fisker, right? And so I just think that this notion that they can do that is is un, is 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 bad. And even on the battery program, most of those plants went out of business. The better way of the federal government providing subsidies is in a technology agnostic way. So they should have said, "Look, we don't care who the solar manufacturer is. We're going to support all of them. We're going to offer you a fifty cent per watt." subsidy for every watt that actually gets shipped out of the factory for the first you know 100 megawatts which is exactly what they did with electric vehicles so you're going to support for- a bunch of shit i mean of course you, you need- of course cuz cuz who's going to determine shit you right i mean <laughs> i just think that like the way that the way that like the electric vehicle tax credit works is for every automaker that registers with the federal government you get a $7500 tax credit for your customers for the first 100,000 vehicles you ship whether it's a startup company or whether it's general motors that's a better approach to supporting local you know manufacturing well, do you think that the new structure that they have where they're going to be, you know, helping um, fund green banks and helping do much more kind of aggregated projects, that that's going to be better than trying to finance? I mean, they were using project finance for manufacturing facility that had no collateral. So, I mean, isn't it better to fund what they're now thinking about doing? Yeah, and, Well, and- that's a fund-to-funds approach, right. And so they're pushing the, the review process down to the state level where presumably there's more resources and better knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I just don't understand how you can say that it's appropriate to evaluate individual deals and provide state-level support um, when you can't do that on the federal level. Like, isn't that what the New York Green Bank is doing? It's evaluating deals. It's using state resources to support individual companies that it deems worthy of market participation. No, no, not not individual companies, individual projects. I mean, that's what that's what they're evaluating now on the individual company side. Yeah, the Economic Development Board of the state of New York provided like seven hundred fifty million dollars worth of subsidies to Solar City for that plant in Buffalo, New York, which is similar to the Nevada, you know, program that supported Tesla. Right. So those things happen all the time at the state level. But those guys basically, you know, live by the sword and die by the sword. There's a political, um, you know, mandate. They they decide to use state money to do that. On the federal government basis, it's fraught with risk. If you guys are supporting you know, a program a company in California, the guy in Texas gets really pissed about the fact that they lost money on that deal. 
then how would you support, say, next generation nuclear? You're saying just give uh, some sort of tax credit or give an incentive to every single nuclear startup developing a technology yeah. out there? Well, like, well, on the, I mean, on there the are some that are way further along. Like, I just, I, I, def, I sort of see what you're saying, but there are some companies that are so much further along that you would obviously want to support first. And but you don't know that you don't know that's true. Well, I don't. I mean, obviously, I don't know specifically. No, no, but but, but n- none of the experts at DOE know that's true. At the end of the day, when you think about where we were in two thousand and seven, for instance, around CSP technologies, you know, Azra and Abengoa and all these other people. Yeah, I could have said Abengoa is better because they're a big balance sheet company out of Spain. But do I think that Azra was better? I have no idea, right? But at the end of the day, what I could have done is said, look, we're putting a special subsidy in place for all CSP technologies that receive a valid PPA from the, uh, the government. Separately, what I could have done is had the U.S. military do stuff. So the military, for instance, in military bases around the country are trying to be fully self-sufficient on energy. I think military bases would be a great place for all these 50 megawatt and 100 megawatt nuclear plants um, for their first-of-a-kind deployments. And yeah, the military may spend 16 times more for that first plant, but it's worth it from a national security point of view. Are you saying that it's really just the the loan guarantee program run by the federal government as project finance is simply the wrong mechanism to fund new clean energy? No, I think I think I think funding project finance is fine. But in project finance, the worst case scenario is you get your money back and you get no interest. Right? The chances that the projects that they're supporting are actually going to lose principal Right. Let, let's say like this new microgrid strategy that DOE has come out with. The chances that DOE underwrites these project finance deals and actually loses real principal on their loan balance is practically zero, particularly across the entire billion dollar portfolio. But if they were to invest in microgrid companies with this and microgrid company manufacturing facilities with this money, they would absolutely have a real chance of losing principal, which is when Congress gets involved and starts firing people. Well, and it becomes politicized because you can't help but have that with specific companies. Right, and that's what you have with OPIC and Exim. OPIC and Exim lose money all the time, but they don't lose money on a portfolio basis. Well, I'm trying to figure out if you think that investing in projects was stupid or smart because you dismissed it at first, and now you're saying that that was good on balance because they're making their money back with the majority of investments being in projects, which we have on this podcast talked about being a good idea. I'm d- no, so I'm saying lots of things, I guess. I mean, so on, <laughs> on the specific loan guarantee program where a lot of that money went to very low-risk projects um, for solar, all that did was put a crap load of money in the pockets of Bank of America and Warren Buffett who ended up buying those projects. That, I think, was bad. Sounds I like think the TARP that, program. Right. <laughs> so I think the loan guarantee program... Sh- should support projects. I think that's a very sensible thing to do that can be supported by the U.S. Congress. But it should be supporting CSP projects, first-of-a-kind technology deployments like Stion and some of these other technologies that may not be quite bankable, right? And so these types of technologies that are first-of-a-kind deployments um, are fantastic uses of the loan guarantee program, right? But I think that what, what the loan guarantee program ultimately did for those project finance deals is they said, use the most bankable technology with the most bankable project developers, with the most bankable construction financing providers, and now we're going to give you 1.2% or 2.4% interest financing through a loan guarantee, which I don't think really served the taxpayer as well. 
Well, I'm just trying to figure out why this investigation took so long. I mean, presumably they had a lot of this information. Like they started the investigation in 2010 when Solyndra's reported sales and framework agreements were reported to the DOE were different from what it reported in an S1. So they've been at this for a long time. They've known that the information was skewed. Stephen, why do you think the Keystone Pipeline decision has taken this long? Well, political. The, yeah, it's right. completely and utterly political. And this report was completely and utterly political. If it wasn't, it would have actually implicated the people at DOE. But they didn't implicate the people at DOE, and they didn't implicate the politicos who basically pushed this through through the White House because that wasn't good politics. And so then they decided to blame a bunch of people at a company who was desperate to like get this money. If you're sitting in Solyndra's shoes, what are you going to oh. do? You're going to you're going to give answers that like you know will guarantee you a failure in terms of this thing? No, you're going to lie through your teeth just like Bill Clinton lied about sleeping with Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> right. Like, I'm exactly sorry. Yeah, I, I'm no, look, I I I don't disagree with you on the government official side, but I cannot sit here and defend Solyndra in any way as a taxpayer. That is why I am why completely you pissed off. A startup company like that. <laughs> I mean, this this notion that a startup company goes into a venture capital provider and provides the whole truth and nothing but the truth is ridiculous. That's why you have due diligence. An investor is supposed to double check all the facts that the company is representing because it's in their best interest to only shine a positive light on stuff to the point where they're actually misleading the investor to try to get a close. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm sorry. I, like, I'm very well aware of uh, what startup companies do when they pitch venture capitalists. And in fact, Katie Fahrenbacher had a really nice piece on why we should remember Solyndra in Fortune and, and described how that behavior was not unlike um, what people do in Silicon Valley. But I'm sorry, as a taxpayer, I cannot let that slide. When you read about the emails that they sent to customers telling them to lie about purchase orders, that pisses me off. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend like Look, it's a normal thing to do. Look, you can get pissed off all you want. But this notion that you're going to get pissed off by Solyndra and not get pissed off by Halliburton, who basically like you know took well, billions of dollars from the federal but government. But that doesn't have anything to do with group. it. I, that's not, I'm not saying I'm not. What are I'm you not. talking about? Like people... But like private sector companies lie all the time to the government, which is why they have 17 layers of double. So you're saying I should be happy with it? Why should I be happy no, with I, it? I don't I'm understand what your, you your argument the, is. I'm saying that the federal government didn't do its job and didn't double check the facts. That's I what don't disagree every with that. single has to do. It's not Solyndra's fault. In the same way yes, that it's not it Lockheed Martin's fault, it's not Halliburton's fault. Those guys do what they do. It's the federal government's in- inspector general's office who's supposed to make sure that the government doesn't get fleeced. It's both parties' faults. I'm sorry. I cannot let that slide. Anyway, <laughs> let's go on to the third topic. We're going to talk about another famous billionaire. This time, it's not Bill Gates. It's Warren Buffett. Buffett is a billionaire investor worshipped by many for his shrewd decision-making and low-key lifestyle. He's also loved by many Democrats for his financial support of their campaigns. But Democrats, particularly those within the environmental base, are finding themselves at odds with Buffett, who is doubling down on fossil fuels and supporting policies that would hurt distributed energy. Um, At the same time, however, he's very supportive of renewables in general, particularly through mid-American energy, which is procuring a lot of utility-scale solar and wind projects. Politico had a really thorough piece this week looking at the brewing conflict, particularly as Envy Energy, one of Buffett's utilities, seeks to roll back net metering for solar in the state. And there is a war going on there that has been uh, very heated over the last year. I think we'll turn to you first on this one, Jigger, uh, because you wanted to talk about this. What drew you to this story? 
Well, I just wanted to you know, point out the sort of hypocrisy of using Warren Buffett as a sort of leader of the green movement, right? I mean, Warren Buffett buys into companies that have monopolistic type moats around their business, right? So whether it's Burlington Northern who actually has railway rights or whether it's electric utility companies have monopolies or it's Coca-Cola, which has a brand uh, advantage, Warren Buffett deliberately buys these types of companies, which is deliberately opposite of what we're talking about with climate change solutions or all this other stuff, right? So this notion that Warren Buffett should be like put forward as this champion, yes, in 2010, there were a lot of problems with the financial crisis. And Warren Buffett was sitting on a lot of cash. And so he was able to scoop up wind projects and solar projects at a very attractive price, which he then put into MidAmerican. But this notion that he was making some systematic bet on how wind and solar was better than coal and oil was completely false then and it's completely false now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a businessman, right? So he can invest in whatever the heck he feels like and he can also have whatever political views he wants. And just because he's a Democrat doesn't mean he has to then fund clean energy. I mean, he can yeah. fund whatever he wants, right? And the same I would I would hope would go for um, a billionaire who's a Republican. You would hate to think all they could fund is fossil. I mean, you want people to to kind of try to separate those two and not have it be a hard line necessarily because they're not politicians. They're business people. Yeah. Well, and, and for- Tom Steyer has the same issue, right? I mean, he made way more money on fossil uh, investments at Farallon than he did on clean energy investments at Farallon. Mm-hmm. And is now divesting But absolutely true. And for both of those reasons, both your points brought me to say, like, who cares when I when I looked at Warren Buffett's total portfolio of investments. But this is relevant in an election season where a candidate like Hillary Clinton is getting pulled in two different directions. So one direction is toward the big money donor like Buffett. And the other direction is toward the grassroots, which overwhelmingly wants to see you know, in the environmental movement, at least, overwhelmingly wants to see net metering and support for stricter environmental policies and support for distributed generation. You know, you got Nevada Senator Harry Reid talking about this issue as well, calling out NV Energy specifically. So it's kind of uh, turning into this interesting game of political chess, perhaps overblown by the press. I mean, perhaps internally they don't see it this way. But, you know, the Democratic elite are figuring out how much they can push against someone like Buffett in public because there is this sort of rift. Well, this is but this is part of the reason why I wanted to talk about this is and maybe to pivot it slightly is that people with old money, which is generally the people who give the most. Right. You know, you don't see as much philanthropy out of like Silicon Valley, for instance, as you do out of multi-generational families. A lot of them got their money from oil, gas, coal you know, timber, um, a lot of these types of things. I mean, in fact, many of these families own electric utility companies, right? They, they're, they were, you know, early days in that. And so it's hard for us as, you know, folks who are trying to change the system to really depend on these families and these people to come out and say, we are going to basically support policies that are dramatically different from how we actually gained our fortune um, in, in the future. And so it, it points out why this is such an uphill battle and why this is so hard for us because, you know, a lot of the power brokers got their money this way. I think it's a really compelling story. And for the reasons I mentioned, like there, there is, you know, can the democratic elite are getting pulled in different directions from say big donors like Warren Buffett and, and environmental groups within the base. 
do you think that 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 internally the conflict is the same that we we portray it publicly um like will these energy decisions or the difference in in the way Hillary Clinton sees distributed energy or Warren Buffett sees energy does that impact the way he donates money or are we just inflating this uh issue far beyond what no, it really is No I I don't think it has anything to do with the way he personally gives money mm-hmm. but the way Warren Buffett runs his companies is the CEOs of each company get to do whatever the hell they want to do to maximize shareholder returns and so the CEO of NV Energy is saying look I don't care what Warren Buffett my owner says like this is what I think is best for me and I'm going to push this and Burlington Northern's the same by the way Burlington Northern is one of the largest shippers of coal around the country I mean Sierra Club is fighting Burlington to Northern tooth and nail to prevent them from um, making more money by shipping you know, coal via rail to the ports on the western side to be able to export coal overseas, right? I mean, like this is real stuff. Burlington Northern is the one who's shipping all that oil from the Bakken Shale down to you know, Louisiana and having all those oil fires. Yeah, it's it and Berkshire Hathaway with all the investments in solar, wind, hydro, and geothermal. I would add, um, you know, they've been working hard to try to do proper reform and get rid of the qualified facility. You know, try to change that up. So, yeah, I mean, I think he does give his companies a lot of leeway in what they want to do, and as long as yeah. there's not this hypocrisy of, you know, I'm going to give to a dem and be green, and then then my companies can do whatever they want. And I don't think that's the case. I have not seen that. I've yep. seen only that he's a business person. That's right. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But I think that the, the problem comes when we expect something different. Okay. Um, I think we'll wrap up the show with that. Jigger, when you are uh, at a cocktail party, you're hanging out and you want to impress someone, what are you going to tell them that they don't know? Well, you know, the the interesting thing that, that I've been looking at recently is the geothermal space. It's just fascinating to me how stagnant it is. So for all of the success we've had in solar and wind, I was just reading the 10K of like U.S. geothermal, for instance, and U.S. geothermal has had no growth in the last year and a half. And they were supposed to be the big company that rolled up and then went public and, you know, did all these things. No growth. And then when you think about like the clean power plan and where geothermal fits within that, um, it's like uh, we kind of hope that it comes through. But, you know, I just remember back in 2008 when Iceland was going to export all their technology around the world and we were going to have a geothermal future. It's just it's fascinating to me how completely nowhere geothermal is. We have an episode that is still relevant that we recorded maybe a year and a half ago. You can go back and revisit that if you walk through our feed. I, I can't remember when we recorded it, but it's still relevant. Nothing new has happened. And we got some pushback from the GEA and the GRC. But, man, I have not seen any additional positive messaging. Like, they, they have not figured out how to get their voice in the political arena whatsoever. Part of that yeah. is a product that, you know, the companies aren't making any money, so they don't have much of a voice to begin with. But the voice is not strong right now regardless. Catherine, when you're at home and your kids come home from school and they're looking for an authoritative voice and they ask you, 
tell me something I don't know. What are you going to tell them? <laughs> they would ask, actually ask their dad. <laughs> but um, no, so yesterday I was in Chicago for the day at this Women's Energy Summit, and it was run by the Illinois Commerce Commission, but had, and the lieutenant governor, um, who was a woman, Evelyn Sanguinetti for the state of Illinois was there. She was amazing. Um, had a lot of utilities, um, a lot of the traditional energy businesses, a few of us from clean energy. But the most interesting conversation I heard was a panel with executive level, C-level COOs and CEOs of Southern Company, Alliant Energy, and PNM. And they're all women. And first they were talking about, you know, how they came up through their careers and kind of the soft questions. And then the the moderator said, so what do you think of the clean power plan? And of course, that's when I perked up and took out my pencil and paper. And they all said, we have the solutions. We can meet all of the targets of the clean power plan, and we're going to help our states comply, which I know makes total sense, and that's how you would think utilities were going would think about it. But it was really great to hear it, and it was great to hear that they're trying to come up with new solutions. Um, I know that there are huge talent searches because I was talking to a recruiter there who said utilities are desperately trying to find people who know solutions other than what they already have. So all, all, everything that John Carrington was talking about, but Southern Alliance and PNM all were they were in on it. They were in for the clean power plan. That's not unlike what we've heard from utilities before um, other EPA rules are, are rolled out, too. You know, when the MAX rule was being developed, you got some utilities saying, well, we already have the scrubbers installed for this stuff. You gave us a couple of years leeway. Like yeah. m many utilities were already prepared to meet that rule. So you've heard that consistently over the years as new rules have been developed. And, and I think it's helpful for the proponents of these rules when they can point to some of the biggest utilities who are prepared to meet them. Yeah, definitely. I've got uh, Elon Musk on the brain. Um, we're reading this book, Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. It, it chronicles his childhood, his early career, the, the numerous startups he's known for, and along with providing some, some juicy behind-the-scenes details about all the problems his companies have dealt with, it, it gives a pretty intimate look at Musk's management style and very unique drive to get things perfect. And he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Um, certainly has a lot of character flaws when you look at his personal life and, and the way he treated his wife and his divorce. But when it comes to running companies, man, um, he's just really an amazing guy. His personality and perfectionism can drive a lot of people crazy. But at a time when, when Silicon Valley is so focused on meaningless apps and quick IPOs, it really is inspiring to learn more about a guy who's working to, you know, completely upend some of the biggest industries in the world like energy and automobiles and space travel. So we are, I highly recommend the book. It, uh, we're going to have the author in October, Ashley Vance, on the show. We still haven't set a date yet, but um, you can read up the book before we interview him or just wait and hear more about it when we have him on the show. Um, it's pretty fascinating. And uh, I have to say, actually, one more thing, learning the ins and outs about how Musk has scaled manufacturing for rockets within SpaceX and then EVs under Tesla does make me less skeptical about SolarCity's plans to be a solar manufacturer or Tesla's battery gigafactory. So I can sort of see his grand plan better than, than I did before. Our podcast is sponsored by the Tier 1 solar manufacturer and LED manufacturer, Renasola. Check out the company's panels, LEDs, and other equipment at renasola.us. All 100 of our episodes are on SoundCloud, 
on Stitcher or at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. You can dig through the archives and come up with that geothermal episode I mentioned. Um, thanks again to all our loyal listeners who've been with us for a hundred episodes. Um, not sure how you stand listening to my voice every week, but by God, we do appreciate you being with us. Catherine, have an awesome weekend. Terrific. Thanks. You too. Jigger, you as well. Thanks. I, I think they get through the podcast with something stronger than your coffee. <laughs> <laughs> your cocktail recipes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.